Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, Episode 27. Welcome to this episode of the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Architecture school graduating classes consist of approximately 50% men and 50% women. But somewhere along the way to licensure, 32% of the women drop out of the profession to pursue other paths. Why does this gender gap exist? What are those women doing if they're not pursuing architecture? Where did they go? My guest this week on the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast is on a mission to find out. Architect Rosa Shang is a member of the board of directors at AIA San Francisco and leads the committee called The Missing 32%. Their mission is to investigate what is causing this disparity between men and women architects and to support the women who do decide to pursue their passion for architecture. This is a very interesting topic, and Rosa has lots to share, so I'm going to get right into the interview. Rosa Shang, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. It's Glad uh, to be here. It's great having you here. Um, Likewise. I like to uh, start off with my guests uh, on the Entrepreneur Architect podcast by asking them to introduce themselves and to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what inspired you to become an architect and your journey from that point all the way through to what you're doing today. 
Sure. So um, it's kind of interesting because I knew I wanted to become an architect at an early age of 11. Um, usually people decide later on in high school, but um, when I went to visit my grandparents in China at the age of 11, uh, my grandfather was uh, very proactive in showing me the history of Chinese architecture as he knew I enjoyed art and um, you know different environments. But when we went to the Great Wall and also the Forbidden City, um, there was a viewpoint on top of a hill where we were looking across this great panorama of Beijing. And he basically emphasized that that was an intentional act and it was designed, you know, and there were designers and people that actually planned this whole thing out. It wasn't just something that happened by accident. And that's the point I realized that, wow, there's such a great impact and a long-lasting impact to be made on the built environment um, at that point. I don't think I could articulate it that way, but it was definitely something that um, was a light bulb of, aha, I could do this. This would be really amazing. Um, so he always encouraged me, um, you know, to the point of his death uh, to become an architect, much to the dismay of my parents and mm -hmm. my um, other relatives who said, oh, you can't make any money that way. You should be a doctor or a lawyer or something else. But the more they pushed, the more I dug in my heels, <laughs> so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so I went on to um, study architecture at Syracuse University. And um, f from there, um, you know, after graduating, I uh, started working in Philadelphia as an architect. It was really difficult at that time um, because it was a recession back in 1994. And there wasn't much going on um, in the East Coast as far as new construction. I was doing uh, work with uh, retail uh, malls as well as um, retail outlet stores, the kind of you know fake towns, if you will, um, of the time. They're trying to recreate a new urbanism, but with um, staged retail kind of Disney-esque. And a friend of mine was working in um, Pittsburgh for Bull and Swinsky Jackson and um, said, you should you know, try to come out here. There's some projects out west that are pretty interesting, one of them being uh, Pixar Animation Studios. And um, that was kind of the impetus for coming uh, to California. And a bunch of us from the Pittsburgh office um, ended up founding the San Francisco office out here, um, born out of the Pixar project. Um, we were fortunate enough to work closely with um, Steve Jobs. And from that, um, after that project, we started working on uh, the Apple uh, retail stores. And um, the first one being the Apple, uh, the Soho store in New York uh, with the glass staircase um, and the whole uh, minimal aesthetic that you know today started from um, that project in particular and continues on today. Um, from that, there was a series of Apple re retail stores that we worked on together. Um, the last one that I worked on was the Glass Cube at Fifth Avenue. Yeah, I know that well. Been there many times. <laughs> So uh, concurrently, I had my first child. Uh, I was pregnant with my first child uh, during that project. So I f uh, finished up the contract documents and it was built um, you know, as I was on maternity leave. But then the great thing was when I went back um, to out, out of maternity leave, um, I was invited 
to the store opening uh, in Fifth Avenue, the entire family was invited. And um, there was a, a kind of celebratory dinner of um, the, the design team. And uh, Steve approached me and he said, uh, yeah, I'd like you to come to dinner with us. I really appreciate all the work that you've done for the retail stores. And I was flattered, but at the same time torn because had my family with me, my husband and my then nine-month-old yeah. daughter. So I declined and I said, I'm really flattered, but I can't because I have my family. And he's like, oh, that's too bad. So I thought that was the end of it. And then later on that day, he came over and he said, uh, I've got another place. I got an extra seat for your husband, but you'll have to find a babysitter. There's no kids coming tonight. And again, you know, just extremely flattered, but torn. You know, I can't possibly leave you know my young child you know so I have to decline again but thank you again and then the shocking thing was at the end of the day he comes up to me in this sea of people in the middle of the store opening and he says all right you drive a hard bargain so here's the deal she can come but if she poops or pees or if you breastfeed she's out (laughs) (laughs) so um, we ended up going to dinner I accepted uh, and it was kind of a lesson learned of negotiation for me, of standing up for what I believe in, yeah. and you know putting priorities first. Um, but also, it was a, a great privilege uh, to know that um, he respected me for those decisions. And you know, throughout our kind of working rapport with our whole entire team and um, the Apple team, that there was this kind of mutual respect of working hard, but then also you know, understanding life's values, uh, which I don't think came across very much in, you know, the stories about him, but that's one of the personal stories that I hold Yeah, dear that's a great story. Yeah. It's certainly not what you expect to hear when you, when you hear the name Steve Jobs. No, not at all. <laughs> so, um, so after that, I retired from uh, the Apple retail store design um, part of it, but then I was very fortunate in that... Um, Concurrently, there was a project for Mills College, which is a primarily a women's college in Oakland, California, that is uh, basically older than Stanford. And I didn't realize that at the time, but they've only they only have uh, co-ed graduate programs. So the business school there started about let's say almost uh, 15 years ago, and uh, it was doing really well at the time. They had a donor, uh, Lori Ayloki, who um, gifted them enough to do a, a proper building that was concurrent with their program goals of socially responsible business practices and sustainability. And uh, we won the project in an interview process where they said, you know, we really appreciate uh, you being a woman and a, and a leader in the firm and presented as the project manager. And all the same time coming back from maternity leave, um, there was a large group of women in the, on the client side, which was refreshing, um, most of the time, you know, the profession is male dominated. So that was my first glimpse at what equity, you know, could be in a, in a kind of utopian scenario. So the project uh, was uh, innovative and sustainable. It's won um, a bunch of design awards for sustainability. It achieved League Gold as the first business building business school building in California uh, to achieve League Gold. So that was a major milestone for the college itself. And then um, 
fast forward, the economy, you know, tanked with the last major recession. So um, at the end of the project, I had my second child and um, I was coming back out of maternity leave. And it was quite a challenge at that time that the first time I experienced it where um, there wasn't an immediate project thereafter. And there was a lot of um, experience in marketing and new business development and um, kind of stretching outside of my comfort zone, if you will. Uh, but because there was a lack of new projects, there's a lot of, um, you know, it, uh, helping out on other projects, which I don't mind at all. Um, I'm experienced with uh, specifications and contracts and contract negotiations. So I was able to help out on a bunch of projects, um, including a, a conference center for UCLA and a bunch of corporate Apple work, which, you know, is top secret and I can't really... Uh, talk about in detail, but we did some um, interior, some limited interior renovations um, within their corporate uh, practice of, in Cupertino as well as other locations. Um, so that was a good experience and being able to go back to people I worked with before and um, kind of help them with their, you know, a new, their interior projects at the workplace level. And then um, from there, Currently, I'm working on um, back onto university work uh, with projects for um, Dominican University of California in San Rafael and uh, UC Davis. Uh, currently, we're working on a, a new lecture hall in the programming stages. So, uh, mostly in the programming work right now, but you could see there in most people's cases, there's a climb out of the recession and um, there's a lot of projects, but they're smaller projects, or they're not as um, robust as they were before. And then you're seeing a lot of programming and planning happening. But again, the challenge is uh, getting past the programming stage into the actual building stage again. So, uh, you know, in that mindset, I've been doing a lot of just uh, observation and tracking my own career. Uh, I spoke at a conference last June called The Missing 32% hosted by the AIA San Francisco. I was on a panel um, called Building Your um, Communication and Negotiation Skills with a, a panel of other women, um, some principals and um, somebody who works with architects as far as being able to present themselves in an interview situation. Uh, and it was well received and uh, the conversations at the, uh, the symposium itself were um, very diverse, but they kind of led to the question of, well, why isn't this conversation happening more often? You know, with the um, this, the controversy over Denise Scott Brown uh, and the Pritzker Prize and subsequent uh, publications and articles that have come out, lean in from Charles Sandberg to uh, there's a local author named Katrina Alcorn. There's a book she published called Maxed Out, which talks about uh, the kind of societal demands on you know, modern day uh, women trying to do it all and then burning out because of it You know, on the counterpoint to lean in Sheryl Sandberg's proposal that you have to you know, get in the game and continue that way. So it's been really interesting uh, doing the research and observing, but also understanding that there's a need immediately in the Bay Area and also nationally 
for this conversation to continue in order for us to reach uh, gender equity as a goal. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but I'm hopeful that now is a nascent point where on the national movement, you have the, the Equal Pay Act. Uh, the, um, there's a couple of bills in place in Congress even to help try to equalize what is perceived as you know, gender, the gender gap. Um, should I pause or should I keep going? Well, it's, it's, oh, it's a very interesting story. The, so it, let's just focus in on, on um, the missing 32%. Sure. Uh, explain what that is. Uh, yes. and, and, and you just, you described a little bit about how it happened, but talk about what it is and it's, and it's mission today. Sure. So the name itself, uh, came out of a statistic, uh, that was, uh, I guess three years back that was provided by AIA national and it had to do with the fact that when men and women graduate from architecture programs, it's roughly 50, 50, uh, men and women coming out of those programs. The startling um, statistic is that for AIA, 18% uh, of those women are tracked as being licensed. And again, it's AIA and it's not a broader survey of sorts, right. but still it's pretty startling as a drop-off point where you think in modern day society it should be closer to 50-50. So therefore, the 32% is you know simple math of subtract 18 from the 50 and 32 are unaccounted for. And I think the title was pretty compelling in getting people to raise the red flag that there is an issue because most people don't believe that there is one. I think for the longest time it was kind of, there's a lot in the camp of, well, I don't need to be recognized as a women architect to practice architecture. I can just work hard and therefore that should be the solution. But obviously it's not. Um, and even, you know, when we heard the statistic originally, there was a lot of disbelief, but then we actually looked around our own office and there is, you know, there's a couple of, there's three women at the senior leadership level that are titled. There's a lot of new interns coming in, but then there's this huge swath in the middle of just uh, a desert of, you know, a, women that have left the practice or have left the firm. So we're dealing with those challenges in our own firm. Um, just trying to figure out, you know, how to, what the problems are, but also how to support women um, in staying on. And part of the research of the 32% was to provide the background to have that conversation because a lot of it is hypothesis. So we thought having a legitimate survey starting from there and having statistics that aren't readily available uh, in the U.S., they have started a, a study um, in Australia, which is two years ahead of us. And they actually were able to um, publish the survey results, establish best practice guidelines, and get their Australian AIA to adopt an equi equity and architecture policy in November. So to me, that's kind of like the gold standard and we're kind of trying to figure out how they did it and you know, model our efforts after theirs because we think that it's exemplary that they were able to accomplish their goals in such a compact amount of time. But obviously there's a resounding need by both men and women to have more balance you know, in, in the work environment, both in gender, but also in, in practice of um, work-life 
uh, quality and flexibility that I think is currently lacking. The, the survey, the survey is how you and I connected. I, we connected on, right. on Twitter. Yes. And I saw the survey going around on Twitter and I, I uh, contributed to that. Thank and, you. <laughs> um, and I and I tried to you know promote it as much as I could. Did, did you um, have you published those results yet? They are still in the uh, so we have a team of researchers at Mills College of statisticians and uh, students. Uh, that are under the guidance of the um, head uh, professor there who are currently processing the information. Mm -hmm. So it's not a, you know, kind of push the button and out sure. comes the response. Yep. But there is a bit of cleaning up to do and interpretation based on half filled out answers and whatnot. Right. Um, so we're constantly checking in with them, but the goal is to have a completed uh, set of data by the end of a raw data anyway by the end of May or early June and then our group of the missing 32% will be trying to package that in a digestible way in the form of infographics mm -hmm. of the key statistical findings and the full report would be available probably at the same time as our symposium in the fall um, that we're currently planning so a set of and it would launch the kind of discussion of best practices um, and we're so we called the survey equity, equity in architecture, and the symposium will be called Equity by Design, which is, again, launching that effort to uh, seek out best practices to be able to publish that in some form as a way for firms to start thinking about equity and having those conver difficult conversations, but also trying to implement good practice guidelines to keep the best talent um, from leaving architecture so so the committee is a is a, an AIA San Francisco initiative right yes yes and, but the the survey itself started out as being a local initiative and then because of the momentum we're getting in the interest we opened that up to a national survey so it's not as robust as it would be if we started out as a national survey but the I think we ended up with uh, almost two 2,300 responses. We're a little bit under, but pretty close to that. Yeah, that's great. That's a great response. Um, so that's, so do you, um, and so so the committee is still running it, right? The, the yes. San Francisco committee. And, that's and, the, correct. and the committee's mission really is to create, is to do research to figure out what, what is causing this gap. That's um, correct. And then create some sort of support resources for that for though for whatever you find so it can change right that's basically yes, the mission absolutely and if you visit our website which is uh, www.themissing32percent as spelled out not the symbol for percent.com um, you'll find a lot of resources already in place we viewed having a website as a way for that a platform for the dialogue to happen so we have a whole area on um, research that's been done already as a way to link to those research findings, um, different articles written ab about why women leave architecture. So we try to collect all those articles as a, a way for people to not have to start finding them themselves, but as a, as a resource in that starting that dialogue. Right. That's, that's what, a great resource. Thank you. And what we also hope to have is another part of it is just recognizing 
the people that inspire us. So in the future, we're going to have um, video and audio interviews with women at different stages of their career who are, you know, doing so, so something slightly differently or have a compelling story that would speak to other women and motivate them in the profession because oftentimes you hear that there's a lack of women role models. So we figure, well, if we have them virtually, um, people can tap into these stories and find inspiration and kind of tips and tools of how to overcome some of their challenges. I think, um, you know, <coughs> entrepreneur architect focuses mainly on sole proprietors and yes. small firms. And I think that's a, you know, that part of architecture is certainly one way for women to uh, continue in the profession. Because, you know, from, from what I see, my wife is my partner. Oh, and, okay. And, and one of the reasons we started Five Cat Studio, which is our firm, um, we have our own firm and we currently now work from our own home. Uh, we started in the home and we moved out of the house and for 11 years worked in a local studio, built it into a nice uh, medium-sized firm or small small firm really, it's always been a small firm. And, uh, and in November, we decided to go virtual and, and move our staff to, to their own remote studios and we work from our own uh, remote studio and we do everything through the internet. And one of the reasons why we started Five Cat Studio right from the beginning was so that we could raise our family. Uh, we have three kids uh, and we knew that we wanted to both be architects and continue being, in, being architects and have, uh, have our own, um, you know, have our family at the same time. And we did sacrifice the, um, uh, you know, guiding, you know, growing in a larger firm in order to, to sure. do what we do, but we also um, have a, the opportunity to do to stay being architects and to be very involved in our in our own family. And so I, you know, I could see that being one solution certainly because it's 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 a way for um, women architects who become mothers because, I, from my experience, that's probably and 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 it may be supported by your survey. That's, I would say that's probably the number one reason why women leave the profession is because they leave to become mothers. And then it's either difficult to get back in from the outside or from the inside as mothers, they're torn on whether they want to go back because they want to be mothers and they, they want to be architects. And there's no solution to that, to be both. Um, do you find that that's something that's, that's repeated uh, in, in your research? Um, yeah, I guess it depends on the circumstance. So you're right, there are other alternatives um, for women. And actually, that's been pretty historic is that women tend to practice on their own or in small firms doing residential architecture. And um, there was an interesting article written by Tara Imani, who yeah. cited very early on, you know, in, in the kind of formation of the AIA itself that unfortunately for whatever reason residential architecture was not viewed as architecture with a capital A mm -hmm. it was viewed as like a subsidiary and from that period on you know it wasn't legitimate you know women practicing architecture on a residential scale wasn't viewed as legitimate at that point and for some reason that hopefully is different today but you could still see how some of that stigma 
still carries on in the way we recognize architects and their work. And I hope that changes going forward, you know, with social media, um, the accessibility of self-reporting and what you're doing is really admirable, I think, and a lot of other architects um, such as Neil Pan and um, Enoch Sears, you know, and, and trying to elevate the kind of uh, the day-to-day architect and not your architect, right? Right. Uh, but I think there are opportunities for women who want to choose to practice at larger, medium-sized firms. But the problem is, or the solution, I should say, is having the network, the support system in place at those firms. Right. Uh, choosing the right firms, being very selective when you're interviewing and observing not only the current design opportunities available to you, but the kind of structure when you're going into a firm and um, really talking to the people that work there and figuring out all those things that you're going to want later on, not immediately in the firm, but if you do stay, uh, what is the policy for on-ramping and off-ramping and working outside of the office, telecommuting, flexible work schedules? We're really fortunate here in that... um, the firm is very supportive that if you come up with a plan on how you're going to on-ramp and off-ramp, so to speak, they will support you. And um, I've been you know, really lucky in that uh, I've managed the Mills uh, Graduate School of Business project I basically did between two children, which normally in a, you know, a larger firm or a firm that support um, you know, women in that way would say, forget about it. You can't be a project manager of that, you know, that size of a project. Um, but seeing that I was committed to doing it and that I came up with a plan in order for that to happen, a lot of the work also happens at night. So um, strategically planning when I'm in the office, uh, how to work effectively, working smarter, you know, having the kind of face-to-face critical things happen during work hours. And then a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, mo- the mommy midnight shift, as it's called, or, you know, when the parent has to go home and carry on work after hours, uh, writing emails, um, doing specifications, things that don't require um, that face-to-face interaction. We're, you know, fortunate in that technology is advanced, that we can have go-to meetings now, and a lot of the interactions that allow you, t- you and your firm to carry on virtually is something that I think the larger firms are getting more comfortable with. So I think um, the idea of having a go-to meeting with a, a consultant or the client, uh, they're getting more used to that, uh, lends itself to saying, well, you know, I can have that kind of touch-based meeting at home in the morning or you know, later in the afternoon. Uh, doesn't preclude that you're not an invested worker um, just because you can't put in the physical hours you know, at the office, it's just figuring out a way to do it effectively. Right. I, I think that the as the internet matures yes. and, the, and the tools become more available and more accepted, um, it, it, it may be it may be interesting to to see the small firms lead the way with this and the, Absolutely. And the larger firms learn from what the smaller firms are doing. Um, because I think that's that's a, a, a big part of the solution to allow um, families and and businesses to sort of become integrated, where the, the, we have integrated lives, where our, our the design side of us and the parent side of us can start to merge, which is what what small firms are doing. That's what we've done from the beginning, and the and the internet tools are allowing us to do that even more. 
I don't call it a work life balance. I call it an integrated life where some, some, you know, we do it, we, we work very flexible hours. Um, and it's, and, uh, you know, from a larger firms off, uh, perspective, if they moved from the number of hours we worked in a studio, you know, you know, basing our compensation on, on the number of hours we worked to the amount of work that we get done and the quality of that work, uh, you know, it will allow both men and women to be more flexible in what they do and, and the lives of their families and be much happier employees. Definitely. Uh, and, and so I, and I, and I see that already happening in small firms. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I guess my kind of, uh, goal in the practice is to modernize the way we do things with technology to help that to encourage that to that flexibility to occur. Um, it also helps because a lot of projects that we as architects do these days are not in our home base, in our immediate neighborhood. They're, they just happen to be somewhere else. So you know, being able to bridge that gap with technology not only helps ourselves, but helps the project. Um, yeah. So we're, I'm, I'm a big proponent and a champion for implementing software that you know, modernizes some antiquated uh, practices such as, you know, during CA having to physically send each submittal as a hard copy or stamp that and then, you know, photocopy it five or six times and then send it back to each of distribution, right? A lot of that now is um, taking care of online with cloud-based software where you're doing virtual PDF approvals of submittals and being able to upload them, download them easily, and having the whole team be able to collaborate uh, is something that's really important. It's changed the way we do business here. Yeah, it, it's a it's a very interesting um, it, it's a very interesting subject for me because I, I it it'll be interesting as it grows and as as your your research and your survey develops to to see how the two uh, sort of uh, become intertwined that that the issue of um, uh, equity in architecture and this, this new virtual arch- you know virtual firms right. sort of come together and and almost solve each other's problems and it just that and, would be great wouldn't it <laughs> exactly and it, and it may just you know through the research and the focus that you're doing will make you know shine a light on it and it, it the tools may just happen at the right time for things to to happen that way um, absolutely and it, it'll be it'll be very interesting to to uh to see where it goes i i know that you're on a on a hard deadline coming up here so um i i i appreciate your time uh oh, with thank me. you for having me uh, is there anything else that you want to share before you go yes um there was an interesting article um that i read this morning from the the atlantic um that i'll forward to you but it's about confidence um, or, you know, women being able to have confidence in what their ability to do things that I thought was an eye opener because I don't oftentimes think about it that way. But um, in the article itself, it presents these various examples where, um, you know, where if you're, for example, if you're going after a job and there's a bunch of check boxes, a guy will have, um, about five of the ten check boxes, like I have these covered, you know, I, I'm proficient, and then he'll wing the rest. 
Whereas a woman, if she doesn't have all 10 checkboxes, she won't go after the job. So there's a, a big hurdle in terms of confidence and supporting women and developing confidence um, that is often challenged you know, during these key milestones in your life um, that we can help develop and instill that outside of just having the flexibility of technology in the workplace, it's really um, changing the way we, we teach our children to grow up and to think about themselves you know, for future generations, but also to understand ourselves and the kind of you know, personal skeletons in our closet that we face that keep us from achieving our goals and our dreams. I, I love it. I could I could talk <laughs> I could talk for hours more. Uh, well, well, we'll talk again. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. But thank I would, you. I would love to. Maybe when um, when you have the report uh, published, I'd love to uh, to get into it a little more and talk about. Oh the, yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for Thanks, being Mark. with Thanks, Mark. Okay. Yeah. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. So what are your thoughts on this topic? Where are the women in architecture? <laughs> Maybe they're just smarter than the guys and they left the profession to pursue avenues with greater potential. That's just a joke. I don't, don't send me any email on that. Maybe they became mothers and they decided that motherhood was more important. Or maybe they left to become mothers and when they wanted to come back, they weren't welcomed back. I'm married to a woman architect. Amory, who's my partner, who is also the mother to our children. I, I see how hard it is to do both. Even with the firm structure that we've built at Five Cat Studio to allow us to contribute to both our firm and our family, it's not easy. It's a very difficult problem to solve. It'll be very interesting to see how the internet affects the gender gap as web-based collaboration tools mature and it becomes more acceptable to build a firm with flexible work hours. And as business models based on merit and skill become more commonplace than hours-based models, it'll be very interesting to see if the gap begins to close. I look forward to seeing the results of the missing 32% survey and, and maybe inviting Rosa to come back to share her findings. I hope that we can work that out. So I'm sure you have your own opinion on this topic. So go to entrearchitect.com episode 27 and leave a comment. I'd love to continue this conversation over at the blog. So leave a comment over there and we'll uh, keep this thing going. And before I wrap up, I want to say thank you to So Sokokyu. Sokokyu. So I, I apologize if I messed up your name, Sokokyu. Um, but you left a review over on iTunes for the blog and I wanted to say thank you and a five-star rating. That's awesome. Uh, I appreciate all the reviews and the ratings that the podcast has received. We're up to 32 ratings and 21 reviews now. That's awesome. That means so much to me. I love to read what you think of the show. If you want to leave a review, go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes, and that link will take you right to the iTunes page where you can leave your thoughts. So I would love for you to go do that. And I want to say thank you again to Rosa Shang for spending some time with us here on the podcast. She is very busy, and it took some time to coordinate our schedules. Uh, we were on and off for a couple of weeks. But she is a leader in the profession, and I wanted to give her an opportunity to share her message, and I'm glad we connected, and I look forward to speaking with her again in the future. So that's a wrap this week. Uh, until next week, my name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect. 
Thank you so much for listening. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything i'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical season one featured founders jeffrey lexi and chris owners of level studio architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio one evening stumbled into one last dive we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together.
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.